but I live and work most of the time uh, out of the UK uh, with a background in philosophy, but then moving into a general interest in apologetics and uh, subjects like this, where we're looking at evidence for Old Testament history. Uh, and we're going to cover, in particular, the period from uh, Abraham to Solomon, uh, time allowing. And, of course, I cannot prove that everything reported in the historical sections of the Old Testament scriptures about uh, these periods that we'll be covering is accurate. But what I think I can do from looking at the evidence, and uh, particularly we'll be looking at sort of archaeological evidence, extra biblical uh, evidence and so on, is to undermine a particular sceptical theory uh, that throws general doubt upon the historicity of the Old Testament. This is the debate between the so-called minimalism and maximalism schools about Old Testament historicity. As laid out by uh, Dr. Michael Heiser here, he says, for those unfamiliar with the minimalist versus maximalist debate over biblical archaeology and history in general, the former, the minimalists, basically believe that the Old Testament has little or no historical value, as it was entirely written during or after the exile, that is the Jewish exile in Babylon, which happened in the 6th century BC. So if it was written then, and some would go as far as to say it's just a sort of a bunch of fables made up by the Jews to kind of give themselves a sense of national identity under the oppression of uh, the exile and so on. Obviously, the further back in history you go from that 6th century point, um, the less likely it becomes that the Bible is reporting anything of any historical substance or value. Maximalists, on the other hand, disagree with that minimalist position, but on uh, what I'd call a continuum of optimism, more or less optimistic, about the biblical text as a historical source. So I don't think we can go to the, the evidence to like prove everything in the Old Testament that depends a bit more on your attitude towards trusting the testimony of the source or not, uh, and maybe other uh, issues around uh, your kind of uh, theological views about where the Bible came from and uh, who Jesus was and what he thought about the Old Testament. And there's a whole bunch of issues there that we can kind of, let's bracket that and just focus on what can we say about this minimalist theory of the 6th century origin uh, ish of the Old Testament historical literature on the basis of the, the uh, historical and archaeological evidence. One point to begin with, the, the, the Old Testament repeatedly passes the historical criteria of embarrassment. It's an important criteria that historians use uh, that gives them some confidence in sources when those sources say things that are embarrassing to the source of that testimony. The Old Testament is brutally honest about its leading protagonists. I mean, just a few examples. Moses, the great national leader, committed murder or at least manslaughter, tried to avoid God's calling, and is prevented from entering the promised land because he disobeys God. 
King David committed adultery with Bathsheba and arranged for her husband to be in the front line of a battle so he'd be killed. The nation of Israel as a whole is descended from slaves and repeat, repeatedly fails to live up to its covenant with God. Now I'm not saying those are historical facts, I'm saying those are claims made by the documents. Those are quite odd claims to be made in documents that are just made up by the Jews. They're not really the sort of claims that you find in documents from sources unless the sources kind of have to go, well, yeah, of course, you know, we have to admit that happened. It's embarrassing, but that's what happened, so we, we have to tell you. Um, if they were in a position just to make stuff up, uh, people tend to make themselves as a nation or as a people or as the reporter look better than that. Would you make this up, in other words? Well, let's uh, start by taking a little look at uh, the famous British atheist Richard Dawkins and what he says about Old Testament history in his uh, recent book, Outgrowing God which has kind of been described as a sort of junior version of his best-selling book, The God Delusion. He asserts, and I use the word advisedly, he asserts that biblical scholars don't take the Old Testament seriously as history. He asserts that this or that Old Testament story makes an extraordinary claim requiring extraordinary evidence for you to believe it. He asserts that there's an absence of extra-biblical evidence for the historical truth of certain Old Testament stories. And he asserts the existence of extra-biblical evidence against the historical truth of certain Old Testament stories. And we'll look at examples. That is a whole lot of asserting for a book that's supposed to be encouraging young people to ask for evidence, by the way. <laughs> there are no footnotes or bibliography in Dawkins' book. You cannot check him out. He doesn't tell you where he gets the information from. He just asserts it. He asserts biblical scholars don't take the Old Testament seriously as history. Here are a few who do. <laughs> So his claim is clearly not true. Now, you know, he could maybe have said something like, the majority of biblical scholars don't take the Old Testament seriously as history, and then given us some sort of footnote to a sociological survey, giving some evidence that that was the case. But he doesn't do that. Um, and certainly from my reading, I can give you examples of biblical scholars who do take the Old Testament seriously as history. So this is, at the very least, uh, a false generalisation on Dawkins's part. He asserts that this or that Old Testament story makes the, an extraordinary claim requires extraordinary evidence, yeah. kind of uh, mantra. Uh, this is what uh, I, as a philosopher, would call a kind of reheated, fallacious, i.e. it doesn't work, Humean, Humeanism, that is, comes from the philosophy of David Hume, the sceptical Scottish philosopher from the 18th century. 
in making this claim, basically Dawkins is cribbing from Carl Sagan, who was cribbing from David Hume. And as the uh, American philosopher Timothy McGrew says, uh, the argument here usually in practice turns out to go something like this, which he calls the, the argumentum Sargani after Carl Sagan. It says, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The claim that a miracle has occurred is an extraordinary one. Therefore, any evidence supporting the claim that a miracle happened ought to be extraordinary as well. I'm not really sure what I mean by extraordinary, but whatever you come up with, it's not going to work. Therefore, no one is justified in believing any miracle claim. If you want to delve into this uh, at more depth, there's uh, a whole big section of this in my book on the historical Jesus, Getting, Getting at Jesus, where I look in a lot of more detail about David Hume and his influence and uh, his arguments about the believability or not of miracles. But actually, when you try and pin down in specific terms the concept of, okay, what counts as good evidence? What are the good rules for collecting good evidence? What are the good rules for what is the best explanation of evidence? Then you stop being able to make these kind of evasions of, oh, that doesn't count. As, you know, what do you mean by extraordinary specifically? Once you get specific, you then have to address the evidence and the arguments uh, for those claims in specific terms. As William Lane Craig says, the fallaciousness, the not workingness of Hume's reasoning has been recognized by the majority of philosophers writing on the subject today. That is, most philosophers of religion, and this is not just like Christian philosophers, most philosophers of religion recognize that David Hume's arguments about you can't believe in miracles and you have to have this kind of extraordinary evidence that that's, uh, you can never get uh, don't really work when you get specific about these things. So, and that's the front cover of my book, Getting at Jesus, that deals with that at more depth. So what about Dawkins' assertion that there's an absence of extra-biblical evidence for certain Old Testament claims? Well, that is what a philosopher would call an argument from silence. And these types of argument are notoriously tricky. Say, well, there, there isn't extra biblical evidence for this, or there isn't any evidence apart from the witness on the witness stand making the claim, there isn't any evidence that backs up what they say. So you can't believe it. Mm, hang on a minute. That, when you put it like that, it begins to sound a bit dodgy. Context matters a lot here. Um, you know, if I peek into the room next door and I say, oh, there's an absence of evidence for an elephant in this room. I don't see an elephant. It's probably pretty good evidence that there's no, evidence, no elephant in there, right? But if I peek and I go, hmm, there's an absence of evidence appearing to my senses that there's any viruses in this room. That absence of evidence isn't really saying anything about whether or not there are viruses in the room. Right? Context matters. Arguments from silence tend to make an undisciplined shift from the absence of evidence for or against a proposition to conclusions about the truth or falsity of that proposition. 
But as atheist writer Victor Stenger warned, absence of evidence is only evidence of absence when the evidence should be there and it isn't. Like in the example with not seeing the, the elephant. If the elephant was there, I would expect to get evidence of it being there by looking. But that doesn't hold in the case of viruses. Again, you need to be specific about the claim and be careful. Indeed, we have a very, very limited access to the past through the known chain of its effects into the present. Only 35 out of 142 books of Roman history that we know were written by the historian Livy have survived to the present day. In about 20 manuscripts, the oldest of which dates from the 4th century, and Livy was writing in the, uh, the 1st century BC to AD kind of divide. John Currid uh, notes that in Israel, more than 6,000 ancient sites have been surveyed, yet less than 500 of that 6,000 have been excavated. Of those, less than 50 have been exposed to major excavation work in terms of doing the archaeology on the sites. It's a very small percentage of what is even known about has really been studied even. So to say, well, there isn't any extra biblical evidence, it often leaves you open to people then digging it up later. And that's happened time and time again in the history of scepticism about the Bible. Finally, Dawkins asserts this a claim that there is actually extra-biblical evidence against the truth of certain Old Testament stories. Uh, this is a matter of ignorance on his part. I'll give you an example. Let's start with looking at the, the patriarchs uh, uh, here, and we'll, we'll come on to a specific uh, about Dawkins and, and camels uh, later. Gordon Wenham asks this interesting question about why in the Old Testament you, you don't get mentions of the, 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 the pagan god Baal or Jerusalem at early stage in the documents. It says the complete absence of Baal from the patriarchal traditions points to the antiquity of those traditions. In the second half of the second millennium BC, Baal took over from El as the leading god in the, the West Semitic pantheon of gods, yet he's never mentioned in Genesis, which is entirely intelligible if the patriarchal tradition originated from before about 1500 BC, but hard to understand if it comes from later times. And since Jerusalem existed in patriarchal times, the failure of those narratives to mention Jerusalem as a centre of worship is again most easily explained if those traditions uh, were uh, originated and perhaps even committed to writing before Jerusalem became the principal cultic centre around the beginning of the first millennium BC. Because the question is, would someone writing in Babylon in the sixth century BC get the time, no, 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 not to mention Baal or Jerusalem, though that would be anachronistic to mention it. 
They can't go and look it up on Wikipedia or visit the local museum to work out the timeline in the way that we can. But they, they don't. We'll um, keep returning to this Old Testament uh, timeline and uh, looking at the stories about Abraham in around about, I'd say, 1800 BC-ish. This little passage from Genesis 11. Uh, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan, but they came to Haran and they, they settled there. And you can kind of trace uh, the, the geography of those journeys and the existence of the places that are mentioned in, in the text. And that tends to be the case when you can check the Old Testament sort of um, um, political geography, geography of the cities, cities existed, routes were the routes that people would have taken uh, and so on. But Dawkins asserts that Abraham's camels that get mentioned in his story are an anachronism. Because the camel, he says, was not domesticated until many centuries after Abraham is supposed to have died. So here is a case where whoever made up the story just got it wrong because they weren't to know and so they made an anachronistic mistake. As I say, ignorance on his part. Where does it come from? Uh, I don't know because he doesn't give us any references. But maybe from uh, season seven of the Big Bang Theory where you have this little conversation between Howard and Sheldon. Howard, we can't show up to your mum's empty-handed. We should bring something. Sheldon, I already am. I'm bringing the gift of knowledge. Oh boy, says Howard. <gasps> Sheldon, despite what her Bible says, recent archaeological studies indicate that although camels are referenced in the Old Testament, they didn't exist in the Middle East until hundreds of years later. Howard, I was going to say we'd pick up a cake or a pie, but an insult to her faith is always thoughtful. But where are the writers of the Big Bang Theory getting this talking point for their joke? Um, well, Brian Wood says a, a study of camel bones from the copper mining site of Timna in Israel concluded the use of domesticated camels at Timna was not earlier than the last third of the 10th century BCE. Uh, New York Times reporter uh, John Wilford picked up on this archaeological report and then penned an article called Camels Had No, Plate, no Business in Genesis in February 2014. So we've gone from an archaeological report about domesticated camels weren't used at this one site in Israel to a newspaper report about camels had no business in the book of Genesis. And this is from Wilford's uh, uh, article here, this quote at the bottom and the, the picture that appeared alongside the article. It's like, oh, people might not know what camels look like, so let's give them a photo of camels. Uh, radiocarbon dating was used to pinpoint the earliest known domesticated camels in Israel to the 10th century BC, decades after the kingdom of David, according to the blah, blah. So this is probably from one of the sources or other where, David get, uh, where Dawkins gets his story. But as the Orthodox Jewish rabbi and university professor 
Joshua Berman observed, camels in Genesis are right where they belong. It is true that camels were not domesticated in Israel until the time of Solomon. But read Genesis carefully and you see that all its camels come from outside of Israel, from Syria, Mesopotamia and Egypt, where there is ample evidence of domestication of the camel during the period of the patriarchs. <laughs> Egyptologist Kenneth Kitchen says it is often asserted that the mention of camels and their use is an anachronism in Genesis. This charge is simply not true, as there is both written and archaeological evidence for knowledge and even use of this animal in the early second millennium BC and even earlier. In his study of the domestication of camels in history, Professor Martin Hyde, who did a talk on this subject at the ELF conference a number of years ago, uh, from which I uh, quote from his uh, report that he was kind of giving a talk pricey of. He says, the archaeological evidence points to the fact that the, uh, the Bactrian camel was domesticated before the dromedary camel and was put into use by the middle of the third millennium or earlier. That's BC. Uh, the gradual spread of the Bactrian camel seems to have reached the Mesopotamian civilization sporadically by the middle of the third millennium and more frequently at the end of the third, beginning of the second millennium. The archaeological and inscriptional evidence allows at least the domesticated Bactrian camel to have existed at Abraham's time. See author Kenneth Kitchen's book on the reliability of the Old Testament, page 339, and a very good article by Mark Chavales uh, called Did Abraham Ride a Camel? in the magazine Biblical Archaeological Review, Archaeology Review, uh, uh, issue 44 from 2018. I like giving footnotes. <laughs> uh, let me come on with just a little mention of uh, Joseph here, around about 18th century BC, uh, in this uh, area of the world. A uh, little passage from Genesis 37. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother, Joseph, and conceal his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be on him, for he is our brother. You know, let's be nice about this. Let's just sell him into slavery. You know. And they drew Joseph up out of the well they'd thrown him into and uh, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to e Egypt. 20 shekels of silver, hey? Interesting. I wonder if they got that little offhand historical detail about the culture Right. And is it likely that someone writing in the 6th century BC in Babylon would have got the price of a slave in the Middle East in the 18th century BC? Correct. Let's do some research and plot a graph. On the green we have the extra biblical evidence about the inflation of the price of slaves in the Middle East over time. And in red, at the beginning of the red line here, we've got uh, the plot of Joseph being sold. So these are average lines, but basically you can see there's a very close agreement uh, on the lines uh, between um, the green and the red there. 
that yeah, basically the price that's mentioned in Genesis there is around about the right price that you'd expect from the extra-biblical evidence. Hmm, interesting. What about the Exodus? Uh, sticking with Egypt, of course, following the story of Joseph, having been sold into slavery there, and now looking at his descendants. Uh, and we come on to Moses in about the 13th century BC, I would say, but that is controversial because there's uh, several schools of thought over the dating of the Exodus and so on, but hey, I'm going to plump with that. Kitchen, again, says to explain what we have in our Hebrew documents, we need a Hebrew leader who had experience of life at the Egyptian court because it gives a kind of accurate reflection of knowledge of that culture. Um, and remember, Kitchen is like, he is like the doyen of British Egyptologists. Including knowledge of treaty-type documents and their format, as well as traditional Semitic legal and social usage. In other words, somebody distressingly like Moses is badly needed to make any sense of the situation as we have it in the, in the documents. Dawkins says, you would think that such a big event as the enslavement of an entire nation and its mass migration generations later would have left traces in the archaeological record and in the written histories of Egypt. Unfortunately, there's no evidence of either kind. No evidence of anything like a Jewish captivity in Egypt. It probably never happened, although the legend is burned deep into Jewish culture. And again, asking the question, well, if it didn't happen, why would that legend be burned deep into Jewish culture is an interesting one standing over this. And noting again that he's making an argument from silence stands over this. Argument from silence. With Kitchen, again, says a tiny fraction of reports from the East Nile Delta occur in papyri recovered from the desert near Memphis because the dry conditions preserve the papyrus. Otherwise, the entirety of Egypt's administrative records of all periods in the delta are lost. So, perhaps not all that surprising that we don't have any written records of this because we have hardly any written records of anything. The monumental text, that is, texts on buildings, are also almost nil, and as pharaohs never monumentalized defeats on temple walls, because the purpose of writing stuff on a temple wall is propagandistic. No record of the successful exit of a large bunch of foreign slaves with loss of a full chariot squadron would ever have been memorialized. So the argument from silence that Dawkins is trying to make here in, in this case seems to be a, a bad one. Thomas Davis is an archaeologist who works in the Sinai area. Uh, he uh, reports that the formation process that affects archaeological data in remote desert environments, such as Sinai, and the nature of the archaeological signature of a migratory group 
force a reassessment of this negative conclusion from the absence of evidence. He says, yeah, there's an absence of evidence, but I, as an archaeologist who work in these conditions, wouldn't really expect to find any. Now, and from the 18th century BC, so a, a bit earlier than the Exodus on whatever um, school of dating you tend to go for on it, but the Brooklyn papyrus is a surviving bit of papyrus with quite a lot of holes in it, but interestingly it contains uh, names of slaves. It's a slave list from the south of Egypt, lists dozens of slaves, and it includes various biblical names like Shipra, which was the same name as the Hebrew midwife in the Exodus account. Now note, I'm not saying it's the same person. This proves that Shipra is completely the wrong century. Right? But it's showing that on a list of slave names in Egypt from before the Exodus, there were people who had Semitic names in that country. It also uh, contains names like Asher, Menhem, and Ishkar, uh, which are the ones all highlighted in, in red there. And the tomb of Vizier Rechemiah from the 15th century, middle of the 15th century BC, has these wonderful uh, wall paintings in, in his Theban tomb of Rechemiah, who was uh, an Egyptian vizier, I mean, sort of prime minister, basically. And these scenes depict Nubian and Semitic slaves making mud bricks. Which, making mud bricks, by the way, is exactly the task that Pharaoh sets for the children of Israel when they're slaves, according to the biblical accounts. Uh, have a look at Exodus 1, 14 and 5, 7. Scott Hahn and Curtis Mitch note that the Exodus story displays an accurate knowledge of the Egyptian agricultural calendar in chapter 9. The use of acacia wood, which is indigenous to parts of Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula, but isn't found in Palestine, for example. And they argue it's difficult to believe that authors in post-exilic Palestine could have known and accurately portrayed the conditions of second millennium Egypt. Joshua Berman again notes that there's multiple allusions throughout the Exodus narrative that he says strikingly appear to reflect the realities of late second millennium BCE Egypt, which a scribe living centuries later and inventing the story afresh would have been unlikely to know. He notes all sorts of things from the, the form of the tabernacle in the wilderness, which he argues is based on the portable throne tent of Ramesses II, to the use of terminology like God taking the Israelites out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, which has precedence in ancient Egyptian literature, that kind of phraseology. Uh, Berman believes that the Torah is full of cultural allusions which would have been deeply meaningful for contemporary Jewish forebears if it was written at the time it claims, but which can now only be understood through the lens of academic research. Research, of course, that wouldn't have been available to Jewish scribes in or after the 6th century BC. James Hofmeyer, Richard Hess, Benjamin Noonan, 
have documented cultural and linguistic links between late Bronze Age Egypt and the first five books of the Old Testament that they think, again, point to the authenticity of the tradition. Noonan uh, goes into observations about Egyptian loan words in the Exodus and wilderness narratives, uh, which she thinks were borrowed in the late Bronze Age. Um, he says it's likely that the events of these narratives took place during the late Bronze Age, just as one would expect if they represent authentic history. Uh, Edwin Umarchi argues that the similarity of the Mosaic Covenant to the Hittite Surazanity Treaties, uh, when one um, culture or people group is saying we're, we're kind of subservient to another, we'll pay you tribute, this is the kind of arrangement that we're going to enter into, if we live up to these rules then you'll do this to benefit us, but if we fail to live up to these rules then you'll do these things to punish us. Those kind of treaties change over time, like do you put the punishments first or the benefits first, and those kind of, there's changes and you can track them over time. Um, and the Genesis covenant between Israel and God reflects the kind of covenant that existed in the culture in the Middle East at the time that the biblical story claims to be from, rather than from other times. Steve Moshier and James K. Hoffmeyer, uh, Hoffmeyer is an Egyptologist well worth reading on the uh, Exodus story, used information from geology and archaeology and digital topography and satellite imagery and put it all together to produce a map of the Eastern Nile Delta and the Sinai Peninsula during the Bronze Age. Because of course, you know, waterways, rivers move over time, lakes dry up and new ones form and, and so on. Deserts shift around, etc, etc. And they found that their map of, of those regions in the late Bronze Age, when they then compared it to the Exodus stories, the restored geography, they said, provides a plausible map of this region that is described in the Exodus texts, that it gets the geography right. Again, 6th century BC scribes didn't have satellites to be able to check out the topography of that region. The Menepta stele, stele means uh, a stone with inscription carved into it. Dated from about 1220 BC, the Manepta Stele is an extra-biblical record of a people group called Israel. Set up by Pharaoh Manepta to commemorate military victories in Canaan, it proclaims, quote, Ashkelon is carried off, and Giza is captured, Yohanan is made into non-existence, Israel is wasted, his seed is not. Typical kind of hyperbolic language of ancient Near East warfare texts, by the way. Of course, Israel wasn't exactly wasted. He had a significant military victory over them. Yohanan uh, are followed by an Egyptian hieroglyph that designates a town. Israel is followed by a hieroglyph that means a people. There's also the so-called Israel Berlin statue pedestal relief, which has been dated by scholars from between 1400 BC and 1213 BC. There's a debate here, uh, as there is often about the interpretation of archaeological discoveries and so on. There's a debate around the pronunciation 
of one of the words that has to be slightly reconstructed because it's, it's got damaged over history. One school of thought argues that the presence of the sh sound invalidates it as possibly reading Israel. Another school of thought argues that there's no known location the name could refer to after Israel in context. If Israel is the correct meaning, reading the spelling of Ashkelon and the proximity of the names Ashkelon, Canaan and Israel, all mentioned on here, are all reminiscent of the Menepta Stele from the 13th century. The rendering of the name Canaan is similar to its spelling in the early 14th century, but could simply be archaic or copied from an earlier inscription by whoever chiselled it in there. Um, it's hard to say with certainty, um, but there's a, an ongoing interesting debate about this bit of archaeology. Uh, but together, those show, okay, at least by these kind of dates in the 13th century, there was a people group uh, in Israel. John Currid notes that during the 12th through 11th centuries BC, many small settlements emerged in Israel. And many of these were occupied for the first time, new settlements springing up. He says it's tempting to attribute this influx of settlement to the Israelites. Tempting, you can't prove it, maybe it's plausible. Uh, David Perush notes uh, about the four-room house. Um, different cultures have kind of different architectures and um, people often talk about the four-room house as a sort of stereotypical uh, Israelite Jewish way of building things. Uh, it says a distinctive home floor plan appears suddenly throughout Israel at precisely the same time as the Hebrews enter the Promised Land, at least on the 13th century dating of the Exodus. In 2017, excavations at Kerbet al-Mashtra, a 2.5-acre site in the Jordan Valley north of Jericho, revealed some stone enclosures with rectangular rooms, pottery dating to the Late Bronze Age II, Iron Age I-ish era. The site appears to have been used by a nomadic or semi-nomadic group at the beginning of the Iron Age. So that's around about 1200 BC. Aerial University archaeologist David Ben Shlomo says, we have not proved that these camps are from the period of the early Israelites, but it is possible. If they are, this might fit the biblical story of the Israelites coming from east of the Jordan River, crossing the Jordan, and then entering into the hill country of Israel later. Maybe. And you often have to say that kind of thing about archaeology. You don't get proof, you get data that needs interpreting with degrees of plausibility. Let's have a little look at the period from Gideon to Solomon. So the period of the Judges to United Kingdom under David and Solomon. So Gideon, I'm going to set at around about 1150 BC. This is a very recent find. Gideon had a nickname in the Bible. Here's a bit of uh, pottery uh, with a name written on it. An ostracon is called, a pottery shirt with writing on it, bearing the name Jerubal, has been unearthed near the ancient city of Lachish, which was like the second major city in Israel. 
Jerubal, which is a name meaning let Baal, the god we mentioned earlier, contend against him, was the nickname that Gideon was given after he destroyed the altar of Baal in Judges chapter 6. The Ostrakon dates to about 1100 BC, i.e. around about the time of the Judges, based on typology and radiocarbon dating from organic samples taken from the same archaeological layer in which it's found. The name Jerubal is only ever used for Gideon in the Bible. And this is the first discovery of it in an archaeological context. Due to the uniqueness and rarity of the name, some scholars believe this to be a reference to Gideon. Others have urged caution. Regardless, this discovery is significant in that it affirms that the name Jerubal was used during the time that the Bible describes. So at the very least, it's a kind of, yeah, in terms of the culture that we can independently know about at the time, whoever wrote that passage got that bit of the culture right, which gives some degree of plausibility to thinking they're in some kind of reliable contact with sources of information about the culture at that time. At best, it's Gideon. What about Samson, the story of Samson, another one of the famous judges of Israel, about 1100 BC-ish. Here's an 11th century stone seal. It's about the size of a, a thumb nail, I think. <coughs> it's being held there in the palm of someone's hand in that photo. It's thought to depict a man fighting a lion. It was discovered at Beth Shemesh, the house of the sun, in 2012. Um, Professor Shlomo Banimovitz, sorry if I've mangled your main professor, uh, says if we were right, it shows that the Samson legend already existed around the area of Beth Shemesh during that time period. We can date it quite precisely. Now note that he's saying, you know, uh, you, all you can say is really, if we're right, this shows that the legend, the story, existed in that region from that time. It doesn't prove that Samson existed and fought a lion. The location, date and image match the Samson and Lyre encounter depicted in Judges 14. Beth Shemesh is about 19 miles west of Jerusalem, near the Iron Age border between the Israelites and the Philistines. Samson was reportedly born and was buried across the valley from Beth Shemesh, according to the Book of Judges. And Samson's killing of a young lion in Judges 14 happened on the way from his family home in, of Timnah, uh, the site identified as Tel, that is, you know, Mount, uh, Mound, uh, Batshesh, uh, a few miles from Batshemesh. And there's this very famous passage from Judges 16, where after Samson has been uh, captured and, and tortured, uh, the Philistines put him on display in their temple, and Samson 
you know, prays one last time and uh, grasps the two middle pillars on which the house, the temple, rested and leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other, and he pushes the pillars down and the, the temple collapses. Well, that's quite an interesting archaeological detail to say there are two pillars in the middle of this Philistine temple uh, uh, to the Philistine god Dagon in uh, Gaza. Now, the, the Gaza temple of Dagon, well, it hasn't been excavated. Um, I don't know why. Maybe people are living on top of it now. <laughs> don't want their homes being dug up. Um, but it was probably quite similar to the Philistine temple at Telkiesel, um, which was destroyed in the 10th century BC and which has been excavated. Uh, here's a photo from the excavations and here's a sort of um, archaeology report reconstruction of what the place looked like. And you can see that in the middle of the temple there are two stone pillars holding the temple roof up. In this case those two pillars are about seven foot apart. So it's not implausible that the other Philistine temple had a similar architectural style. And that whoever wrote about that judge's story knew about the architectural style of Philistine temples from the 10th century BC. What about King David, about 1000 BC? Dawkins says, King David made no impact either on archaeology or on written history outside of the Bible. This suggests that if he existed at all, he was probably a minor local chieftain, rather than the great king of legend and song, right? So maybe he didn't exist, but even if he did, we kind of play down the biblical um, portrait. Again, a matter of ignorance. Uh, Dawkins just obviously doesn't know that the publication of fragments of an old Aramaic stealer from Tel Dan published in 1993 and 1995, respectively, bears the first recognised non-biblical mention of the 10th century King David in a text that reflects events of the year 841 and would have been set up at no great interval after that date. This stela famously mentions the House of David in the highlighted portion there. Here's a quote from Eric Klein, who's Professor of Classics, Anthropology and History at George Washington University. Uh, from his little book on biblical archaeology, a very short introduction, published by Oxford University Press. And he says, the finding of this inscription brought an end to the debate and settled the question of whether David was an actual historical person, i.e., yes, he was. We also have the 9th century BC Misha inscription, or sometimes called the Moabite stone, line 31 of which says, and the house of David inhabited Horonim, the town of Horonim is mentioned in Jeremiah 48. Uh, and there's been some uh, recent additional research on the Misha inscription um, because uh, you want to try and you know, get clear readings of the inscription and over time there's damage to it and there's all kind of, can you clearly reconstruct what, what was there originally and so on. And uh, Dr. Michael Langlios here, who led the research team on this, um, just uh, reporting on it in the Times of Israel. He says, my conclusion for line 31 is that the most likely reading is Bet David, House of David. 
The new imaging technology that we have, that they used in this research, confirms the reading of Bet David. It's a good thing when science can confirm a hypothesis. Um, so if you want to confirm details about exactly what that technology was, you can no doubt uh, find it online. In 2005, excavations in the Philistine city of Gath revealed uh, a Semitic inscription dating to the 10th, 9th centuries BC, bearing two Indo-European names that resembled the name Goliath. It wasn't the name Goliath, but they were similar names. Aaron Meyer, head of the excavations there, says the inscription shows us that David and Goliath's story reflects the cultural reality of the time. Again, it's not so, you can't prove with archaeology that David fought a giant called Goliath. But the report does at least get something right about the culture in a way that, it, again, seems unlikely if it was just made up later, and so on. Uh, this is a so-called uh, Davidic state boule, another one of those little seal impressions. Um, Jimmy Harden, associate professor from the MSU Department of Anthropology and Middle Eastern Cultures, quote, our preliminary results indicated that this site that they dug this and various other um, finds Boulay up on uh, is uh, a site that's integrated into a political entity typified by elite activities, suggesting that a state was already being formed in the 10th century BC. These Boulay uh, date to the 10th century BC, and this lends general support to the historical veracity of David and Solomon as recorded in the Hebrew biblical texts, i.e., no, not just a little local chieftain, but a state running the kind of business that states do with kind of official record keeping and documentation and sending information from one place to another uh, with seal impressions to uh, keep record of what's going on and so on. 2018 discoveries at Tel Eton, uh, believed to be the biblical site of Eglon, on the southeast edge of ancient Israel's territory, has construction dating to the period of King David that fits the biblical description of an expanding uh, kingdom at that time. And here's a, a quote from uh, Jewish archaeologists Joseph Garfinkel, uh, Gaynor, and Hazel uh, from the conclusion of their 2018 book, In the Footsteps of King David. They say historical processes and cultural phenomena referred to in the Bible relating to the 10th century BCE thus finds concrete expression at Kerbet Kiefer, the particular city that they've been doing this big archaeological uh, dig research at, at the same time period. Such clear examples of correspondence between archaeological finds and the biblical tradition stand in contrast to the theories of scholars advocating the minimalist approach and their assertion that the Bible was written during the Henalistic or Persian period or at the end of the 7th century BC and contains no historical memory. But those who have this theory, who have no data or finds to support such views, they say the proposal that the Bible was written many hundreds of years after the events it describes and that it reflects only the period in which it was written is no longer sustainable. And there's a particularly famous Jewish archaeologist called Dr. Elliot Mezar from Hebrew University who, uh, for example, thinks that she's uncovered what was David's palace in Jerusalem. 
Now, it's fair to say that some of these uh, claims about archaeological discoveries, uh, particularly around the, the idea of the Davidic kingdom, uh, get very controversial because they get tied up into political wrangles of an obvious nature, uh, given the history between Israel and Palestine. And sort of ad hominem uh, attacks fly in both directions, and it can be sometimes a little hard to sort out uh, do people have political motivations? Are those driving the interpretation of the data? Uh, what does the data actually show on its own terms? And so on. Uh, so I, I raise just a little flag of caution over those kind of claims, but say, you know, there's no avoiding actually going and, well, you know, go and look at the reports, read the arguments, and just see who you think has the best of it. Um, what more can one do? King Solomon, of course, following uh, right after David in the 10th century BC, about 980 to 927. You will have heard of uh, King Solomon's Mines and the Ryder Haddock novel and all those films about the, the fabulous wealth of King Solomon's Mines in the deepest heart of Africa or something. No, no, no. King Solomon's Edomite Copper Mines. Uh, this mining site pictured here was considered to be a late Bronze Age site related to the New Kingdom of Egypt in the 13th and early 12th centuries BC. But then they did more research and uh, University of Tel Aviv archaeologist Ben Yosef says that high precision radiocarbon dating on the donkey dung from the site as well as textiles and other organic material at the site showed that the mining camp's heyday was actually in the 10th century BC, the era of the biblical kings David and Solomon. Ben Yosef says that if the Bible's claim that David brought the Edomites to heal is accurate, there's a serious possibility that Jerusalem got its wealth from taxing these mining operations. Solomon is reported to have embarked on a building campaign that, of course, included the first temple in Jerusalem. Uh, have a look at 1 Kings chapter 7. Interestingly, many of the implements used in worship in the first temple were made of bronze. Bronze requires copper to form the alloy. Um, have a look at uh, 1 Kings 7.46, for example. Royal purple. Purple was an expensive dye to produce, and so it became associated with very rich people like royalty. Um, you'll know the quote from uh, Luke 12, where Jesus says, Even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these, talking about the flowers of the field. Scholars have identified uh, what's called Argaman royal purple dye on three pieces of ancient fabric discovered at an ancient copper smelting camp in the Timna Valley. Yes, the, the Timna Valley. The dry conditions at Timna preserved the cloth, dated using carbon-14 to 1000 BC. This purple dye, known in the Hebrew Bible of Argaman, is mentioned in numerous passages and is associated with the tabernacle as well and royalty. And so if you ever wondered, you know, what colour was royal purple and 
what Solomon in his finery probably looked like. There you go. Isn't that astonishing? From like 3,000 years ago that we can look at that. That's the colour. And a very recent find, and this is, you know, I always try and update these kind of talks, what's new in the field when I'm giving them. Um, and again, I raise a little flag of caution in as much as there's, there's a report on this find, and I've read about it in kind of biblical archaeological review, um, but it's not been like gone through the peer review process of publication yet. But this is interesting nonetheless. Is there here recently discovered a connection between Solomon and Sheba. You know, Solomon marrying the Queen of Sheba and so on. Discovered, actually in 2012, during excavations at the Ophel in Jerusalem, by the late Eliot Mazar, who was the father of the Mazar that we talked about earlier. Uh, the small inscription here, which includes just seven letters, has puzzled scholars for years. While most have assumed the inscription is written in Canaanite, Daniel Vainstub of Ben-Gurion University now believes it's written in ancient South Arabian script known as Sabaic, the language of the ancient kingdom of Saba, that is, biblical Sheba, in the area of what today is Yemen. Dated to the 10th century BCE, time of the biblical King Solomon, the inscription could provide evidence of trading connections between ancient South Arabia and Jerusalem during this early period. Again, I raise a little flag, but you can keep an eye on it, uh, particularly if you subscribe to things like Biblical Archaeology Review magazine. Uh, keeps you up to date with, with the field. They have a website as well, which is often uh, a good source of uh, new stories in, in the field of uh, archaeology in the Middle East. So, to conclude, to conclude, of course, extra-biblical evidence cannot prove every historical detail of the Old Testament narratives, uh, and I don't think we need it to. Um, testimony is testimony without a secondary source of testimony, for example. But extra-biblical evidence can, I think, provide sufficient evidence to show that the hypothesis of biblical minimalism that we've looked at seems to be a pretty unlikely hypothesis about the formation of those biblical texts. Now, exactly how far our consequent biblical maximalism goes, remember Heiser said maximalism is this kind of spectrum of optimism about the historical content of the Old Testament. How far our biblical maximalism goes will probably depend upon factors beside the extra-biblical evidence. Um, as I talked about at the beginning, theological factors historical factors having to do with Jesus and his claims and who he was and, and so on and so forth. But what I think we can get from just looking at the comparing the biblical stories with the kind of extra biblical historical and archaeological and inscriptional evidence is something that undermines the, the minimalist idea that 
it's just not worth even considering that there might be something of historical value in those texts. No, it seems that either those documents really come from the time that they're talking about, or at the very least you'd have to say that they're connected to that time through some reliable chain of evidential testimony. You know, whether those are documents that we no longer have or a reliable tradition of oral history, um, whatever you make of the formation history of those texts, you have to say, I think, on the basis of the extra biblical evidence, that those texts do put us in contact with reliable information from the times that they're meant to be talking about. Exactly how much, how far, how accurate, it's hard to say, but then that's like all of ancient history. Um, the Bible, the Old Testament is, I think, at least on, just on those you know, common ground rules of doing ancient history, not in a worse position uh, than doing Egyptology or Assyriology or whatever. Thank you.